People of God in Christ, the passage before us this evening, as I mentioned, Ruth 4, verses 7 through 12, contains uh, perhaps the most interesting aspect or event in the story of Ruth. Uh, We might even call it strange, but uh, not wanting to find fault with God's word or even uh, to be uh, suspected of doing so, uh, let's just leave it as interesting. And I'm referring, of course, to this taking off of a sandal uh, that uh, apparently was done by the man we've come to call uh, the nearer Redeemer. And uh, we'll get to the meaning, the the significance of this rather interesting action in just a bit. Uh, And until then, I'll leave you waiting for the other shoe to drop. Okay, that was bad, but that was for uh, Ben. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, but in the meantime, here's a, here's a point uh, to remember that uh, in our study of God's Word, uh, we are likely to come across things that uh, we don't completely understand. Um, we, uh, we already ran into one such thing when we read that uh, Ruth uncovered the feet of Boaz and laid down at his feet. Uh, why did she do this? We, we, we know that it's what Naomi told her to do. But uh, otherwise, we are left to figure that this was a a custom, uh, a culturally determined action that uh, a woman in Ruth's uh, position would do in order to request redemption. Uh, So now we come to another event, um, uh, another event involving the removal of a sandal. And uh, here we at least get an explicit reference uh, from the author telling us that uh, this was the, the culturally determined thing to do. Again, we'll get more into this in just a bit, but, but it's a place to remember two rules of interpretation in dealing with difficult verses or, or passages. Uh, one rule is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We'll do a bit of that tonight. Um, we'll, we'll go back to Deuteronomy 25. Uh, to consider, again, the instruction of Moses regarding uh, what's called Leverite marriage, uh, the idea of a brother marrying the widow of his brother when his brother had died, leaving no male offspring in order to provide him with an heir. But the second thing is this, that we, we shouldn't let what is clear this comes up most often when we're uh, in the book of Revelation, because there is uh, a bit there, which might be an understatement, but a bit there that is, in, in fact, unclear to us. But we shouldn't let what is unclear keep us from reading and interpreting a passage based on what is clear. And, and that's what we'll do this evening with this passage, because even though we don't understand the whole sandal thing perfectly, yet there are other things that are clear and that we shouldn't miss in this passage. What has been clear to this point in the story of Ruth is that Boaz gives us this very wonderful picture of Christ. By looking at Boaz, we are given the opportunity really to see the beauty of Christ as our Redeemer. Boaz is a a heartwarming character in the story of Ruth, but he is just a man. And his character is just a picture. 
So the thing to see beyond Boaz is the one whom Boaz foreshadows. As kind and thoughtful and gentle and even magnanimous uh, as Boaz is in the story, yet Christ is the fulfillment of the image of Boaz. And I hope this, uh, this sermon series, along now with this next sermon as well, uh, has caused you to grow deeper in your love for Jesus as your Redeemer. He is truly the one who is altogether lovely. So as a first point this evening, the significance of a sandal. Ruth 4, verse 7, records as follows. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And so with that explanation of the culture, Verse 8 adds, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now to start with, I think it's worth at least considering the question, Who is it that drew off his sandal? It says he drew off his sandal, but who is the he? Both the nearer Redeemer and Boaz are mentioned just prior to the, the reference to a sandal being removed. Um, we might assume, as, as I think most do think, that it was the nearer Redeemer who did so. Uh, he said, buy it for yourself, and to secure his decision and to make it official, he drew off his sandal. However, it was Boaz who then, in a sense, takes a vow Uh, Remember that the explanation in verse 7 says this was the manner of attesting in Israel, and it was Boaz who attests or makes a declaration upon the gesture of taking off a sandal. Either way, whether it was the nearer Redeemer or Boaz who took off his sandal, we, we really do need to go back to... Deuteronomy chapter 25. Could have read this passage and didn't, but uh, we can uh, at least take note of it now. Um, And as we draw in, so to speak, Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, I don't think it settles it. Uh, I don't think it solves it beyond all debate and discussion about why a sandal is removed. But it seems to me that there must be a, a connection to the instruction of Moses in Deuteronomy 25. To begin with, uh, the context is exactly the same. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 reads, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And that, of course, is exactly the situation here, the the same scenario with Ruth, except that Boaz, Boaz is not a brother. In fact, not even the nearer Redeemer, it would seem, is a brother. So it must be the case that over time, this law 
had been further developed to, to provide for redemption when there was no brother to provide redemption. In the absence of a brother to provide redemption, the next nearest relative was required to do so. But what Moses did say further was what would happen if a man, the brother of a man who died without an heir, what would happen if he refused to do this? Uh, It says in verse 7, again, Deuteronomy 25, it says in verse 7, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, and Moses stipulates that first he is to be confronted and spoken to by the elders of the city. And, and if he still persists in his refusal, then this, in, in verse 9, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So it it seems rather clear, does it not, that there is a, a connection between the passage in Deuteronomy 25 and the story of Ruth and Boaz and the nearer Redeemer. Both of them deal with the scenario of a man who dies without an heir, uh, and both of them deal with a sandal being taken off, again, presumably off the foot of the man who refuses redemption. But there are some differences as well. First, it's interesting that in Ruth 4, the the brief explanation given in verse 7 indicates that this practice had expanded beyond the immediate scenario of a man refusing to redeem his brother's widow. It seems to be saying that taking off a sandal was used to confirm almost any kind of transaction. It was somewhat like a a signature uh, within our own day. And it's on the basis of these differences uh, um, uh, that someone might want to argue that there maybe is no connection between uh, Ruth 4 and and Deuteronomy 25. But I think the similarities outweigh the differences. I think there is a connection. And by my reading, the practice had simply expanded uh, Uh, to include other types of transactions as well. And we know, of course, that God's law itself is uh, is often given in the form of case study. In other words, one scenario specifically named in the law guides then how other scenarios very similar to it uh, should be handled uh, within the government uh, of of God's people. Um, In the case of a man who did not wish to be spit upon, uh, even spit in the face, uh, he was allowed to remove his own sandal, give it away upon completion of the transaction, so that even though he avoided being spit on, yet he still had to walk away from the transaction with only one sandal on, which in itself was a humiliating experience, though not as bad as being spit on. Even more, it would seem to me that as this practice was extended to other transactions as well, that uh, to take off one's sandal, in essence, was to say, 
may I be shamed. May the entire community shame and shun me if I do not do what I am here agreeing to do. In other words, surely the act of removing a sandal was still connected to being shamed. So that if you removed your own sandal, which was the first step in the instruction of Moses, uh, then the idea was that you were inviting the person you gave it to to carry out the second step, uh, to spit in your face uh, if you later refused or failed to do what you were promising to do. Now, why a sandal? Uh, and I don't think we know uh, why. It's, it's what Moses set up as, as the thing to do. And, of course, we would say what God, through Moses, set up as the thing to do. And it seems that as Israel began applying this law, it came to be expanded as the way a deal was sealed. But the point becomes this, that, that to take off one sandal was to invite shame by saying, may it be done to me. May you spit in my face if I do not do what I am here promising to do. And so in this way, like we said last time, it seems to make clear that that this was considered a very shameful thing to do, to refuse to redeem your brother's widow and provide him with an heir. Uh, There seems to be the sense that uh, Moses at least allowed a man to refuse, but if he refused, he had to bear the shame of it. And so even now, even though there are differences in this scenario in Ruth 4, yet the connection, the the connotation is certainly shame. And that sets up the fact that Boaz then was willing to, in essence, cover the shame, both of Ruth in, in, in taking her as his wife, and really to cover the shame of the nearer Redeemer, by doing for him what he was refusing to do. We said last time with regard to our, <coughs> to our redemption in Christ that we are redeemed from death, but that we are also redeemed from life, from a life of sin. Christ's redemption sets us free from the claims of death and the grave, such that we have the promise of resurrection But Christ's redemption also frees us from our slavery to sin, such that we are able to repent and believe in Christ and and go on to live in obedience to Christ and not be enslaved by our sinful nature. But here, then, is another aspect of Christ's redemption, that we are set free in Christ from the shame of sin. The teaching of God's word is that sin is a shameful thing. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned, they realized that they were naked and they hid themselves and tried to make clothes for themselves to cover themselves. Sin and and death and the grave are shameful things. So even as Christ redeems us from sin... So he redeems us from the shame of sin. Which brings us to a second point, a point uh, that we might put this way. Bear me witness. 
Bear me witness. We cannot miss the emphasis in this short passage on the idea of bearing witness. Verse 9 reads, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, and this reference to all the people, I think, probably means that by this time others had stopped to to listen in to what was going on. It would be like someone going to sit in a courtroom just out of curiosity. Uh, Something interesting was happening at the city gate. So they stopped to see what was being said and what was happening. So Boaz said to the ten witnesses that he had gathered at the start, and probably to all the others who by now had gathered, he said, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. And there's a list here. There's a listing uh, of, um, of, of, of the transaction, so to speak. Um, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in, in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his uh, native place. It's almost like a contract. The, the wording is all here to establish what is being done, what is happening, what is being contracted. And then Moaz says again at the end of verse 10, You are witnesses this day. Even more the people respond. Again, probably not just the ten witnesses, but, uh, but all the people, they all responded, We are witnesses. So we can probably see why, why people stopped to see and, and to listen to what was going on. And in this way, they, they, they got to be involved in the deal. Uh, they, they got to serve as witnesses to the deal. And, and it shows us that this was a community thing, which again ties it to a wedding ceremony. Or at least what a wedding ceremony should be in our day. The guests at a wedding are not just guests. They are witnesses. Maybe we should uh, have them respond after the wedding vows are spoken and to say, we are witnesses to your vows. We have heard what you have said and what you have promised in this day. And, And as you live out your vows in community with us, we will hold you accountable to what you have promised to do. But here but here in Ruth, there, there's a strong emphasis on bearing witness. Bear me witness, says Boaz. Be witnesses to what I am now promising to do. I am buying this property to provide financial help to Naomi, and I am taking Ruth to be my wife, to provide her a home, and to provide an heir to the family of Elimelech. And here we are given to think of how our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, how He so often said, Truly, truly, I say unto you. He did so not only as He was teaching the law, but as He was also making promises as to what He, uh, or as to, uh, in terms of who He was and what He had come to do. Truly, truly, I say to you, He said, So many times over, listen to me and hear me. Bear me witness that I am your Redeemer. And all of this also reminds us of the witnesses who were there uh, to the death of Christ and also to His resurrection. 
In fact, the reason we know about the life and death and resurrection of Christ, in other words, the reason we know what we know about our Redeemer and His redemption is because of the testimony of the eyewitnesses. There's that word again, the eyewitnesses who saw and heard Jesus at every point in His ministry. And in the end, Jesus even said to them, to the apostles, he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When I was serving at uh, Westminster, uh, we put up a banner uh, that could be seen uh, by the congregation we could do the same thing here, I suppose. But it was a banner that, uh, that said, Go into all the world, Mark 16, Go into all the world and, and, uh, and preach the gospel. Um, and, and what's being said in that, uh, the assignment that's being given by our Lord Himself is uh, that we are to be witnesses of Christ to others uh, in our lives, even as Boaz said to all the people, you are my witnesses. So Christ comes to to say the same thing to us as his followers today. You are my witnesses. I want you to hear those words even from the lips of Christ tonight. You are my witnesses. And even as the people responded, we are witnesses. So we must respond to Christ in the same way. We must say, yes, we, or make it personal, I am your witness, Lord Jesus. I will bring the good news of your redemption into all the world, certainly into that part of the world that I inhabit in this coming week. Are we ready to do that? Because that really is our calling. I hope we are ready because, in a sense, that's the part of our being here. Uh, that's the point of our being here each Lord's Day, by way of God's Word, which is to say by way of the witness of the apostles, we hear of and see the redemption of Christ all over again. And the point is that we then become witnesses as we go forth, following Jesus, living for Jesus, proclaiming Jesus and His redemption to the whole world. Finally then, and and briefly, blessings upon Boaz. Uh, Have you ever wondered why we sing psalms like Psalm 72, uh, in which we are calling for the blessing of God upon our Redeemer King? Uh, Psalm 72, verse 5 and following says, May you... May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So these are words sung by Israel regarding Solomon. These are words written by Solomon so that the people would sing them to God regarding him. But when we sing them, these words, 
we sing them regarding Christ. We are declaring the blessings of God upon Christ. And indeed, God the Father has blessed His Son. God the Father has blessed His Son with all authority in heaven and on earth. And with all blessing. God the Father has blessed the Son as His reward for a job well done. And what job? The job of Redeemer. Christ has done what the Father called upon Him to do. Christ has earned the blessings of God. And the reason we now call upon the blessing of the Father to fall upon the Son is because the Son is our King and we live under His blessed kingdom. We want the Father to bless the Son so that the Son will bless us. We we share in His blessings. And as the Father pours out blessing upon the Son, so He pours out blessing upon us through the Son. As the Father pours out blessing upon the Son, so the Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, blesses us with all that He has earned on our behalf. That's the transaction, if you will, of our salvation, and it's a glorious thing. And we see this aspect of Christ's redemption in the fact that it says in verse 11, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, uh, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The people were pronouncing blessings upon Boaz. The people were in essence crying out, God bless Boaz. God Bless Boaz. And why? Because they saw in Boaz a beautiful thing. They saw mercy and compassion and authority used for the good of others. And they were proud, surely, to be part of the community in which such good things happen. And where such a good man pours out his blessing upon others. And so they declared, God bless Boaz, because as God blessed Boaz, they would receive the blessing as well. And they delighted to live in the same community as this good man, Boaz. Well, brothers and sisters, we must look at Christ in the same way. It is such a a vicious lie of the evil one if he makes us believe that being a Christian is a chore, a, a burden. We are, we are fools to believe this and, and to think that, that we can be lords unto ourselves. Can we not see that Christ is the good King? Ephesians 4 verse 8 says of Christ, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The whole point of Christ's finished work is that he might acquire a kingdom, not for himself, because he already had the kingdom for himself, 
but to acquire it for us. And so he has bestowed on us a kingdom. He has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. And it's a blessed kingdom. It's a kingdom filled with blessings. Even now, with Christ as our Redeemer King, we are redeemed from sin and death and the grave. We are redeemed from the shame of our sin. And, and in the age to come, we, we will possess the blessings of his heavenly kingdom, the riches and the, and the glory and the honor of a new creation. And so in our, in our worship of Christ, even now, we should declare the blessings of the Father upon the Son because the blessings that Christ has received, the blessings He has earned, He has received and earned for us that, that He might pour them out upon us. He is our Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, let us love our King. Let us obey Him gladly. Let us bow our knee to him eagerly and even joyfully and let us long for his return. Let us live each day longing for, expecting his return in glory. Exactly because even now and all the more in the future, he will share his glory with us. Amen. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would um, understand these great truths of your word. Christ is our Redeemer. How that works, what that means, what it is to us that uh, Christ is the greater son of David. He is the greater Boaz. Uh, he is our eternal Redeemer King. And uh, under his reign, by way of his accomplishment, Uh, We have an eternal kingdom of blessing. Help us to live for Jesus, loving him, serving him, seeking his honor and glory in all things. And in his name we pray. Amen.